Welcome to The Deciders. This is Renee Frazier, the founder and CEO of Frazier Communications. We're the leading woman-owned advertising and marketing firm in Southern California, woman-owned and woman-led. At Frazier, we specialize in changing behaviors, growing brands, positively impacting society, and using communications to make the world a better place for both private and public sector clients. But our show, The Deciders, features leaders in their field, change agents in their communities on topics that are very important to us today. We ask people to share their stories, reveal data and information. And today, in the world of California and the United States, we are experiencing the beginning of the end of COVID-19. But this new phenomena that we experience we're experiencing this new phase is dependent. I'm going to, this was written by Darlene and it's not exactly in my words. So I'm going to have to start that again. Uh, Art, sorry about that. No, no worries. All good. On the deciders, we ask people to share their decisions, their stories with an emphasis on practical implications for the world we live in and for us as business owners. Today in California, we are experiencing the beginning of what we would say is the end of COVID-19, the vaccinations that we're all hearing about and hopefully many of us are getting. I myself have been vaccinated after looking at the research, but we have been working with the Department of Public Health since March of 2020. And we know there's a lot of hesitation regarding the vaccines. I'd like to know why. And I thought it would be interesting for us to share that expertise with two Frazier folks who've been working on this diligently and very closely. Today, we're going to examine the issue, talk to them so we can better understand the research and the insights. My guests today are Beth Kilgore. Beth is the account director and lead for Frazier at the LA Department of Public Health. She has been leading the effort with full integrated communications, which she'll be sharing with you. She's also director of strategy and research at Frazier. Beth has an extensive background in public health, leading campaigns for New York City to prevent tobacco use and to encourage quitting. At Frazier, she's developed several award-winning campaigns for the Department of Public Health and other clients. Also joining us is Dr. Karen Landman. Karen is a physician and epidemiologist. Uh, She also has worked as a freelance health journalist. Now she's the science advisor to Frazier, working very carefully with L.A. County Department of Public Health. She's brought in a deep understanding of storytelling, as well as how to take complex issues and lots of data to make it more meaningful and compelling. Um, She and Beth have really worked closely to curate the messages and the way in which the Department of Public Health is perceived. Just as a note, we have handled COVID-19 education and outreach, as I mentioned, since March of 2020. And both uh, Beth and Karen have worked closely with Dr. Barbara Ferrer in the messaging. Welcome to The Deciders, Beth Kilgore and Karen Landman. Thank you, Renee. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Renee. Absolutely, Karen. Let's talk first about how we stepped in to help the department uh, of public health in LA County in March. Beth, would you talk about that process in a, in a short form? I know it's been quite a period of time, but give us the, an overview. 
Sure. I mean, as you mentioned, Fraser has had a long relationship with public health, and we've worked on a number of public health topics with them, like tobacco control, substance use disorders, lead poisoning, lots of things. And we had been doing some work for them, uh, really starting in late January of 2020 on COVID. But on March 12th, 2020, three Fraser employees began to fully be embedded in public health. Um, and we just basically became team members, um, true partners, and we've been there ever since. Um, I think in the early days, uh, and, and I should say since then, uh, two other team members have joined the, the sort of embedded team, uh, including Karen. Uh, in the early days, though, I think that the greatest need was really assisting in creating content for daily press briefings um, with uh, LA County supervisors at the Hall of Administration. And I will say that this message that got created ended up guiding all the content for all other communications efforts throughout the pandemic. I do think it's important to know that like information was changing daily, truly, sometimes hourly. Um, and so we continue to work with, with Dr. Barbara Ferrer, the Director of Public Health here in LA County, um, to really try to create information for the public that is understandable, actionable. Um, every briefing, especially early on, had to be this really delicate balance of conveying urgency and the state of emergency that we truly were in, with also sort of reassurance and clear information about how to be as safe as possible, especially as things really were changing. And I think that also acknowledging the larger context of the pandemic, job loss, economic ruin for a lot of people, uh, mental health challenges for a lot of people, that was very much also woven into all of our communications. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, this really served as uh, the framework for all other communi communications that we developed uh, with our partner, DPH. Um, and that included you know, social media, interviews with the media, proactive media outreach, PSAs, lots and lots of collateral materials, um, briefing reports to elected officials, and a lot of materials that were used by community partners, especially those uh, partners that were working in the hardest hit um, communities. As Beth said, they became a machine. They became part of the team and expanded the capabilities. Uh, DPH has fine people in their communications department, but there was so much work to be absorbed. Uh, we, we stepped up and worked side by side with them. We're now seeing vaccinations readily available in L.A. County, but a significant group of people, about 30 percent of the population, that means 70 percent, which is a great number to see, have been vaccinated. But those who have not chosen to get vaccinated, uh, I wonder about them. Beth, I know you and the Department of Public Health have conducted research uh, among these hesitators. Please describe uh, the segments and their thinking. Give us a, an overview of those groups. Sure. So I think that like the national data that we have, the state data that we have here in LA County, we do think it's about 70% of people for themselves, and these are adults, are pretty on board in terms of getting themselves vaccinated. And that data is a little bit different when you talk about parents making decisions for their children, which we'll probably talk about a little later. But I think that, you know, for that 30% or so that is kind of in this other category, I would say the vast majority of them are unsure. Um, they're on some, some plate, there's some various place in sort of the continuum of uncertainty. Um, and so I think that, you know, that really required some more examination. Um, 
it's complicated. Hesitancy is complicated. It means different things to different people. There are certainly people who do not want to be vaccinated because they are overall against vaccines. Um, I think that we all sort of agree that communications efforts are unlikely to change sort of that, that group of people's minds. Um, there are also people who are hesitant for political reasons. Um, and that is something that I think, you know, communications, there have been some attempts to, um, to sort of work with influential people for that group around vaccinations. Um, there are people who are understandably wary of the medical establishment because there is a history of abuses, problematic practices against people of color by the medical establishment. And that is very much part of sort of the, um, the, the sort of hesitancy around vaccines. Um, I think there's also a ton of myths and misinformation that are circulating on social media um, and they are ever emerging, these myths, and some of them are very strange and some of them are sort of not that strange and kind of believable, but a colleague describes addressing them as a, as a game of whack-a-mole. Um, mm -hmm. And we just continue to sort of though use facts to explain and sort of explain the origin of the myths in order to help people understand what is actual accurate information. But I think that the largest group in this category and probably the group I'm most interested in is what we're calling the wait and seers. <laughs> and they are people who are open on some level to vaccines. They probably have been vaccinated for other things, um, but they're not sure about the science. They, you know, they may feel that the vaccine was created very quickly. So there may be some issues with it, or they're just kind of waiting and seeing what happens to other people after they're vaccinated um, before they make that choice for themselves. And I think that we're really interested in this group of what they're actually waiting for and what they want to see. Mm -hmm. um, we think that they're probably most influenced by people in their lives who've been vaccinated and are fine, or people who they trust in their community, like doctors, pastors. Um, those are really good carriers for the messaging around vaccine. All right. Those are what we call trusted sources, which is you know, an important part of changing behavior in, in a cognitive and social cognitive model. We do a lot of that at Frazier, but I think ultimately, you know, one of the most uh, important trusted sources, and I'm going to turn to you, Karen, to talk about this, uh, is the public health department itself. And obviously there are skeptics in our community, but I know that public health has a team of data scientists, epidemiologists studying and monitoring all kinds of public health uh, diseases and conditions, but particularly in the case of coronavirus its spread and the uptake of vaccinations. Karen, could you describe what the data scientists are doing, the epidemiologists, and how their data is utilized? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, Renee, across the Department of Health, there are tens, probably hundreds of epidemiologists. So these are data scientists that look at public health data from a whole lot of different sources and try to connect the dots between those data points and try to understand where there's cause and where there's effect. Um, and that's a very complex task because data is not innately clean. Um, it's, there's often a lag between when the data is, um, is generated, when the actual thing happens that you're measuring, and when you actually see the data that represent that event. 
And so, especially at a time like this, um, when there's so many other priorities and, and issues swirling in the, in the general atmosphere, trying to make those connections can be incredibly complex, but they do it. Um, I'll give you an example of a place where it really influenced the way, um, the way we made policy. Um, there's a team that follows uh, school outbreaks and looks at um, cases in students and in student-facing staff and in non-student-facing staff in public schools in LA County. And they were seeing a couple of things and looking at their data. Number one was that in schools, infection rates were higher in students who were not attending school than in students who were attending in-person school. Oh my goodness. And they were also seeing, yeah, it was remarkable. It was a surprise, I think, to many people. Now this is, I should say, during a period when schools had um, a lot of protective practices uh, in place and they were strictly enforced because this is, I believe, pre-vaccine. Um, so they were seeing, you know, they were using a lot of masks. They were implementing a lot of social distancing and cohorting. Um, but they were, in addition to seeing these differences in, in student rates of infection, they were seeing that um, the rates of infection in teachers didn't match the rates of infection in students, but instead reflected the rates of infection in the teachers' home communities. Uh -huh. So that helped us understand a couple things. Number one was that school really was the safest place for kids and that masks really work to protect our teachers. And so that really influenced the way um, LA County reopened schools and the way districts um, reopened their, you know, their schools and the way the measures that they took to protect uh, teachers and non-student facing staff. Um, and the data play a big role in allocating resources like vaccine. Uh, as well, as you can certainly imagine, you know, when we when we slice the data certain ways and see that, you know, young black and Latino men in particular are having especially low uptake, we change our messaging to try and reach those groups um, and also change where we put the vaccine to, to put it in the places where these folks go. Uh, so the data really drives policy at the department as it should. As it should. No, and I think uh, it's really interesting about the schools. I think it uh, it also makes parents feel more competent uh, sending their kids back to school and certainly teachers. <clears throat> you know, you mentioned uh, a black and Latino young man, and I know that's been a very difficult area. I know that the there is also a value in raffles, right, and in incentives. Uh, well, I'm going to come back to Beth in a moment, but since we started on this conversation, Karen, can you bring... Some educate educate us about the the value of those and what the department's doing. Yeah, so there's this whole field of of uh, people worldwide that study this. It's kind of a, a section of behavioral economics where they they look to see what you can what kind of incentives you can set up for people to help them do good health behaviors. And um, we actually find that you know it, it can be very expensive um, to incentivize all health behaviors. So we don't really do it for all health behaviors, but um, and it also, you know, in the long term, we find that when we when you say give somebody a, a five dollar coupon or, or a, a you know free sandwich every time they come for a clinic visit, the effect of that tends to kind of wear off over time. But um, when for a short term kind of incentive, um, for example, just trying to get them to do one thing one time, take a vaccine one time, these can be incredibly effective. And also um, 
having a chance at, uh, at an incentive can often be more powerful than uh, being guaranteed an incentive. And I'm not 100% sure of the psychology of that. Perhaps it's because you can simply offer more when you're raffling off a that's, chance. That's what I have found in the social psychological research is because it's a higher prize. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, and people like to think of themselves as lucky. And yeah. Yeah. And even though they have a very small chance, um, they will show up over and over again to, to to a clinic visit or for a test or for whatever kind of a health behavior that you're trying to incentivize. If you offer them that chance, even if it's not a particularly high value prize. Um, so, you know, I, across the globe, these kinds of programs are used in a whole lot of different settings. Um, and there seem to be a lot fewer ethical concerns about it or sort of cultural concerns about it in other settings than in the U.S., where, you know, I think we have a real value of our self-determination and, and non-coercive kind of environments in our healthcare places. So it's been a, a, a little bit of a longer road to get to that in healthcare settings here, but I'm, I'm actually really glad we're there because I think it's effective. No, I think we're going to see it. It really work to uh, uh, gain some more traction, particularly with those young people. I know, Beth, you're, you've been involved in some of this and know about the uh, the raffles. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that I mean, DPH is is uh, holding now weekly raffles. Um, sports teams have been incredibly generous in donating either season tickets or one time event tickets. Um, and and so that is something that is really designed to um uh, get people sort of more interested in being vaccinated. And, and you know, right now our PR pro push and our priority for that is around people knowing about these raffles, getting excited about these raffles, and then getting vaccinated to be entered. And then, of course, the state of California, uh, kind of taking the lead from, I think, probably Ohio, has sort of put together kind of a raffle sy system of like big prizes, like a million dollars. And uh, really a, an incentive to get vaccinated. And I, and I've heard anecdotally that in Ohio, it was very effective. So it sounds like, you know, in California, um, it's, it's a sort of a good practice to, to attempt. Yeah, it's here. A nice to see it following suit. Usually it's the other way around, but I'm glad to glad to see it. You know, at Brazier, we, we, we talk a lot about uh, the power of trusted voices. And I know that early on in the campaign of educating people and asking them to wash their hands, as we know, wear masks, social distance, uh, and be mindful of the rules regarding going outside versus lockdown and staying at home. Uh, we had to develop strong, powerful voices in the communities themselves. Can you describe some of that work uh, that was done with DPH? But I think that it's first good to put this into context of how hard this job is around communicating, because so often with public health communication is important, but it is sort of a systems change solution that most often has the largest impact, whether that be a tax on cigarettes or, or, or you know, a, a law or something like that. But in the case of COVID, what was the game changer was individual behavior. And so that's why communication was paramount in this uh, endeavor. And so I just think it's important to put that into context that it this was different <laughs> in that communication was really so central to uh, us getting to the other side of this. Um, I think that for so many people, receiving information from a trusted source is what will ultimately get them to be vaccinated. I know that's true for me. My trusted source was very scientific. That's not true for everyone. Um, 
I think that, you know, in research that we created or we uh, conducted, uh, we found that doctors generally were the most credible voice and most trusted source. Uh, and then sort of overall, the local health department was seen sort of as the second most trusted source of information. But like sort of, as I mentioned earlier, you know, for a lot of people, government voices are not trusted, or in some cases, they never even reach them, that they're mm -hmm. not sort of tuned in to government voices. And so finding other communicators who have relationships with or have trust from different parts of the community is so important. I think that, you know, you don't think about it sort of when you think about trust voices, but employers are an incredibly trusted source. And so I know DPH has done a lot of work with employers to, um, to help them educate and facilitate the vaccination of the people that work for them. Mm -hmm. um, and we certainly have worked with a lot of pastors, community doctors, heads of community-based organizations, celebrities, professional athletes, and a lot of other influential people that are both like sort of nationally influential and locally influential to create PSAs and to also be really an extender of our message and amplification of our message by using our social media assets and other things, um, collateral pieces to really um, sort of extend the message and really sort of get very specific about the message so that they can actually have a conversation. It's not just a delivery, a one-sided delivery of a message, but an actual conversation about the vaccination. It's so important because when you're conversing and articulating your perspective, hearing another person, you're actually uh, wearing your, your perspective down perhaps or gaining information and walking your mind through change, an attitude change, belief change that might lead to behavior. I think we also have to acknowledge that this was done in 2020 when we we also had a lot going on politically in the country with President Trump. And so there was a distrust and a skepticism about government that cascaded. Uh, it largely, of course, there was greater trust at the local level than there was at the national level. And we see that uh, in most elections, right, that people trust more the local government than the local uh, news sources than they do the national. But I'm afraid that exacerbated the level of skepticism that people felt. And I'm just going to say, Frazier, to that end, we brought out a lot of free media to help build this. What we didn't say at the beginning of this is there was very little paid media. Only in this last six, three months, really, was there any paid media. It was all donated media. And Beth, can you talk a little bit about that, how Frazier really stepped up? Yeah, I mean, it was, and I want to thank all of our media partners for everything that they did, just went out of their way to deliver the message. I mean, early on in the pandemic, you're right, we did not have a paid media budget, but we were desperate to get information out however we could. And so uh, Frazier, our media, our brilliant media team, yeah. um, did so much outreach to met all of our media partners to get donated TV, radio PSAs, donated billboard space, um, donated sort of, uh, I would say, play space, like sort of in convenience stores and things like that, advertising. I mean, it just donated digital, which was so valuable in targeting. Um, it was remarkable how much and how generous people were and continue to be throughout. Um, so I just, I couldn't, I think that, you know, DPH is so grateful and I couldn't be more grateful because uh, it was unprecedented what we were all sort of dealing with. In that it moment. was, it was. Uh, CBS, iHeart, uh, they all stepped up, Univision, Telemundo, and we're very grateful. We only have about three minutes left. I want to turn it back to uh, Karen. 
Karen, you know, as a health journalist, any insights or thoughts on how we change people's minds and and I'm sure the value of storytelling. Something that Beth said really jumped out at me about um, uh, how the, you know, the power of individual choices became really clear in this pandemic. And I think what we're seeing now is some more understanding of the power of individual voices and, and how different voices matter differently to different people. But fundamentally, you know, what makes most people change their minds about health issues are their either their providers or the voices of people they know and trust in their own social circles. So a lot of strategies I see now seem to aim not just to convey facts, but to convince people who have been vaccinated to use the power of their own voice in changing others' minds and use the power of their own story. And, you know, there's some really good strategies for doing that. A, a journalist named Amanda Ripley has written a lot about um, doing this, she recently wrote a book called High Conflict about it's mostly focused on resolving political conflicts. But, you know, a lot of these tools can be used to talk to people who disagree with you about vaccination or about whether the pandemic is a real thing. Um, and these tools for communicating with people to bring us closer together, they all involve, you know, inviting people in and, and being loving with each other and not engaging in that high conflict. So I think that's something we're seeing in a lot more communication strategies, including. I, I, I like that. I think you're right. I think that, you know, conscious empathy is something I talk a lot about and you, you both have exercised that. Beth, as we wrap up, is there, are, are there any key takeaways you would offer for us to consider as we move into the next phase and, and even think about what if we, we have to experience another pandemic? When you think about poverty and the economic effects on health, um, this has been a very difficult year economically for a lot of people. Um, health equity will be more important than ever, I think, moving forward. Um, I think that the pandemic has shown a very sort of stark and ugly light on the inequities in LA County and across the country, truly. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, this is an opportunity for not just public health, but all systems to uh, to sort of look closely at the pandemic and the lessons learned from it. And now is the time to make uh, changes that really benefit people who are most at risk. I really do have a lot of faith in um, LA County Public Health, in Dr. Ferrer, the leadership in the county, um, in keeping these very issues on the agendas of people who can make change. And I'm really actually very grateful that we have had the opportunity to work so closely with them and to really contribute um, in, in so many different ways to, um, to this past year's uh, unprecedented challenges. Very true. Thank you, Beth. And thank you very much, Karen. I want to uh, thank our listeners for spending time with us on The Deciders. You can hear our podcast anytime on our website at FraserCommunications.com. We're a full-service advertising marketing firm and communications firm. Contact us at FraserCommunications.com to learn more. Thank you again for listening. Thank you, Karen Landman and uh, Beth Kilgore. We'll be back next week here on The Deciders with Renee Frazier.